The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. This morning's reading will come from Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's, Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, people of God. Amen, amen, amen. It's good to clap for Jesus and be in his house. Uh, we are uh, we're in Passion Week. And this week, we will be trying to guide all of you all in devotional, daily devotionals in which many of our staff will have written uh, just a brief word on particular passages. And you will find those on the realm. Just to guide your week and your day, leading all the way up to Easter. There's a drama at play. And we have to find ourselves and understand the massive drama that is happening this week. And we start there today. We start where Jesus has already made the triumphal entry. In which the entry was not so triumphal as one would hope. In fact, we know that Jesus had declared his kingship and brought peace Redemption and reconciliation to the world. However, one who holds the office of prophet, priest, and king was mistreated, falsely accused, oppressed, and beat unjustly. And now no one would assume that the king, and I would echo the Old Testament, the king of kings, the lord of lords, would be treated with such disgrace. Why? Who did he do it for? Well, in our dramatic text, we see that he's done it for you, for his people. 
And understanding so, we know that our passage has caused us to see all the way from Luke chapter 19, where Jesus had disrupted the temple practices that were being performed and also seeing that his his authority had been challenged by the chief priests and the other religious leaders. He was spied upon and challenged by those religious leaders. He was also betrayed by his very own disciple. And parenthetically, I may say that Jesus was betrayed by the very individual who knew that if he was away from community or the crowds, he can, he can arrest, they can arrest him in isolation. I think, beloved, that the devil's schemes are still valid today. That if God, if the devil can keep us away from one another and out of community with each other, every scheme that will say, if I can do it by myself, will lead us into destruction. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He understood the schemes of the devil. And as he was interrogated by, and by the chief priests, particularly Caiaphas, and then brought before Pilate, we see in our drama that was very easy just to fault everyone else that we read about. It's very easy to look at this drama and not see yourself. It's easy to see the chief priests, the crown, the governors and say, oh yes, I would never treat my king as such. It's very easy to say, oh yes, why would someone do an individual who is innocent in such a way? But beloved, I want you not to see what you are not in this text, but I want you to see who you are in this text. And the reason I say that, and I believe it draws our attention to this, because if you then ask yourself the question, how would I choose Jesus? If you say you would choose the right king, then I would say you may struggle with self-righteousness. And then if you say that if you would not choose this king, then I would say, what idol do you still have in place of the one true king? When we ask ourselves a myriad of questions of how we look at Jesus in this particular drama, I do not want you to puff yourself up. I want you to enter yourself into this drama, be a part of the crowd, even the religious leaders, even put yourself in the shoes of Pilate and Herod and look at it and say, what would I have done? In fact, I want you to ask yourself in present day today, who am I? In this text. Where am I in this drama? Because if there is one thing we know is that Jesus came for a reason. And as we look at Jesus coming in this particular situation, he does not bring an uproar as he is being interrogated, as he is on trial. But actually, we see Jesus suffering in silence. As Christ was being interrogated, he did not say much. He did not do much, but he did not have to say much. His silence and sureness was all that he needed. Why? What did it mean? Here's what I want you to hang your hat on. Here's the phrase that I want you to take with you this morning. That Christ being sure of himself suffers in silence to teach us how to endure in times of trouble. He encourages us on how to be Christians in a world where truth and godliness are put opposed to each other. How to be a Christian 
in a society to where subjectivity and postmodernity have taken over the minds and the hearts of our individuals, of our people. How to be a Christian and where certain things that we know that are biblical truths around sexuality, biblical truths around race relations, biblical truths around uh, uh, what you believe theologically and doctrinally. I want you to know that Christ died and he was silently suffering because he was sure of his word. He was not shaken. He was not troubled. But his feet was ten toes down because he knew that he was the rock that founded all things. And beloved, I would encourage you this morning to know that you can stand on him. And hear me now. This does not mean that anyone that is suffering from any abuse, physically, verbally, or any other form, that you be silent. No, beloved. Speak up. If you are suffering from any abuse in your home or from anyone else, you tell someone immediately. But the suffering that we are discussing this morning, that we will see in our particular drama this morning, is a suffering for the sake of Christ. I know that I started this text and I started this sermon in a very serious way. But I'm doing so intentionally. Because I do not want us for one minute to take this particular drama and this entire week lightly i want us to feel the burden i want us to feel the weight of every single element within our text this is why i want us to see it in three scenes i want us to see scene one where jesus is an innocent king but brought up to be guilty and then in scene two i want us to see an innocent king who is treated unjustly and then scene three finally i want us to see an innocent king who in which was sentenced to death. As we look at scene one, we already jump into the heart of the text, where our characters in this particular scene is the Sanhedrin council, is the crowd, is Pilate, and Jesus. The Sanhedrin council is the, and the crowd, Pilate, and Jesus are all coming together, culminating into what we will find a king that is not guilty. Now this scene is actually a reference, is referenced in several, in the, in other four, other three gospels. And in being referenced in all three gospels, we see various different perspectives in which you will see me pull from each of those gospels in order to give you a fuller picture of what happened on that day. The Sanhedrin council, if you do not know, has brought, has to bring Jesus to Pilate because he was the Roman governor of that region. And now that the Sanhedrin council who is assembled of rabbis as they have come to make a decision on matters of a Jew- Jewish law, they cannot make decisions regarding putting someone to death. They only can make decisions around internal affairs by in which in, they have been empowered by Rome. So what does that mean? Pilate has to be the one to sentence Jesus to death. They could not sentence Jesus to death. They could not say anything or take anything from his life. All they can do is bring him up on charges. Why? And who is Pilate? Our next character. Pilate is the governor of Judea, Judea, 
which he is responsible of the finances and maintaining the order and the power and maintaining order and law in that area. Scholars would say that Pilate is portrayed in several ways. In three main sources, you see from a historical standpoint, Josephus and Philo, who says that Pilate was an individual who was cruel and a tyrant. But the gospel pre- presents Pilate as weak and easily swayed ruler. Now, the main character is Jesus. In which this is all surrounded around. One who is silent and quiet, set to the side. All of this uproar about a man who has made him, who has claimed that he is the Messiah, the one to come, the Son of God. And in his proclamation, he is sure. But yet they say that he is misleading a nation. The very nation that he is called to lead. What are these charges? Misleading a nation, as you would see. Forbidding the Jews to pay taxes to Rome, then also proclaiming that he is the Messiah. Look at charge one, misleading a nation. I want you to think about this as I explain what happens. Jesus immediately is put on charges because of the signs, the wonders, and the teachings that he has done. Think about this for a minute. When you look at John 11, 45 through 53, The Pharisees who have come to Jesus, some had actually become believers after seeing his signs and seeing his teachings. But then there were others who actually went to the high priest and went to Caiaphas and said, what do we do about this man who is doing signs and these teachings? And what they say, they said this in particular, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What did they hold on to? The place in the nation given to them by entity was created by God. Remember, beloved, God had come to give them and inaugurate the fullness of his kingdom. But yet they wanted to hold on to what they felt as if they could rule, if they can take. But look at verse 38. You don't have to turn there. But look at, uh, at, at the next couple verses when you see they're talking about Jesus. The Bible says after hearing his teaching, but some of them went and they told what they had, what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests had already planned that Jesus must die. Why? Because of the sign, because of the things that he was performing. Their thought of Jesus misleading the nation were in part was fear that the Roman government would take the very thing that they cherish. They cherish their place. They cherish their nation. Instead of seeking Jesus, the one to come who would make them had already promised that they would be a nation under his reign. They feared. Where do you see yourself in this drama? Where do you see yourself this morning? The other charge is what they have brought him up is forbidding them to pay taxes to Rome. Now, if you remember early in the Passion Week, they had sent spies to Jesus to ask him questions as to why, who should we pay taxes to? And Jesus told them, well, show me the money. Not the Jerry Maguire showed me the money. And they see the face and he says, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. And they were stumped and they could not respond to him. And so they walked away from that time. And yet they're lying on Jesus, saying that he told them otherwise. This charge is obviously false. 
because Jesus intentionally told them to pay taxes to Rome. However, the Sanhedrin council, what do they want to do? They want to argue otherwise because they want to portray Jesus as a threat. One that will steal governmental funding that will help with policing, help with governing, help with making sure that everything is running in that area. And then Pilate will see an individual who is trying to make who in Pilate will see an individual who is trying to cause ruckus in the government, which his job is actually to govern the finances as the financial administrator. Interesting. So if you see it from Pilate's perspective, then Pilate is then asking questions to see, are you really here to, t- to steal my job? Are you here to take over the government in which Tiberius is ruling and reigning? If that is the case, then we have a problem. But if that is not the case, we have no problem. This is why, again, you would see Pilate, who is an easily swayed leader and weak. He doesn't engage with the fact that Jesus being claiming his kingship of the Jews. He doesn't engage, nor does he care. Beloved, go to the next one. What's the next charge? That he is the Messiah. So then he asked him straight up, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, if you say so, if that's what you say, then I am. And after declaring this, Jesus is not giving a direct answer. Only because Pilate doesn't really understand and nor does he know. He only wants to know, is this man a revolutionary? Is he, is try, is he trying to rebel and bring a revolt? And Pilate finds no issue. This is why when the question and answer comes in verse 3, you can see that Pilate is only reeling just to say, because I don't want to do any harm. I don't want to do anything that will offend him, nor do I want to do anything to offend the crowd and the chief priests. He is trying to hang in the middle. And so what does he tell, what does he say? I find no fault. His judgment on Jesus was that he was innocent. Now do not miss it for a moment. Do not miss it that Pilate is not thinking about Jesus. Their approach is that if Pilate is a good governor, then he will not let Jesus go because then he would be convinced that Jesus is a threat. Now, Let's step back because you may say, Mike, I don't see myself in this narrative. Well, I would beg to differ. Because I would think that if you have not found yourself yet, many of us are being misled by various different media outlets. We're being misled by the music that we listen to, by the podcast that we listen to, by the YouTube videos that we listen to. We're being misled by urban mythologies. We're being misled by every blog that we read. We're being misled to be conformed to the worldliness and so that godliness will only become clothed in the lingo to support our culture. The one that we, if we see ourselves as the chief priests, saying is misleading is actually trying to lead us to truth. Because when you think about John 18, when Pilate is actually interrogating Jesus, you have to go and say, what is Pilate saying to Jesus that is causing such an uproar? Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, I'm here to testify the truth. My kingdom is not of this world. And thus Pilate says, your kingdom is not of this world. I have no issue. But listen to this, beloved. Jesus says, I am the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? 
I think today in our culture, we ask that same thing every single time. What is truth? Some of us would see it as an opinionated fact. Some of our others would see it as a, a hard, cold, objective fact. But the reality is, is that all of us wrestle with this because there was some of us who have grown up in the church and we were taught to exclude others. And so when it comes to matters of sexuality, we do not want to exclude or do we want to hurt anyone else's feelings. Some of us were brought up in the church where we are taught to be a particular political party. But then when we go off to college and we begin to engage in various different platforms and understandings, we are stressed and we are challenged because what we were taught, we felt like maybe we weren't told the truth. And I would agree. Maybe your parents were trying to shield you from something. And so they kept you in a silo and now you felt misled. Have you found yourself in the text? We go to scene two. We're scene two in Innocent King. As we set the stage, Pilate is already trying to get off the ring. Because he heard them say, well, he was doing all of these teachings in Galilee. And next thing you know, what does Pilate say? Well, if he was doing them in Galilee, let me take him over to King Herod. And as he takes him over to the governor Herod, who is only 10 minutes away because he's in Jerusalem, what a coincidence. Both Pilate and Herod are in Jerusalem at the same particular time. So the chief priest, the crowd, they rush Jesus over to, Her- to Herod. I keep saying Herod because I struggle sometimes. Herod, Herod, don't mind me. Just listen to the narrative. <laughs> they rush him over to him. And he was waiting. He was waiting to see Jesus. I want you to read what the text says. The text says right here in, in, cha- in verse 7. And when he learned that he belonged to the- to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent them over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Oh, all Herod wanted to see was Jesus do a trick for him because of his own personal desire. I'll ask now, do you see yourself in the text? Does Jesus only do something for you? Are you only wanting him to come in your life because of a sign, a wonder? Or are you only coming to your, you want him to come into your life just to fix something? Or do you want him to fix you? Beloved, I think when Jesus goes before Pilate, in that sureness that he has, and he's so silent before Pilate, and this silence is not like the silence where he was Challenged and interrogated by the high priest, nor was it the same with Pilate because he at least gave Pilate a sentence, but he gave Herod no words. And Herod frustrated because of his frivolous desire to see Jesus turn a trick for him, it doesn't happen. And then you hear, if you can, the chief priests in the crowd, in the background, accusing him, misleading the nation, blasphemer, the one who calls himself king. He is a blasphemer. He is a liar. He is false. And what do you have? King, I mean, Herod, go ahead and send this man off to his soldiers, maybe a private group of soldiers who were standing off to the side and they mocked him in contempt and held him in contempt. And as they did, they despised him. They ridiculed him, treated him wrong. 
But Jesus said no word. How can a man take such suffering but yet be so silent? I only think it's because of his sureness. And as they are treating him with such cruelty, I want you to see, beloved, that Jesus in this particular situation is not ignoring, is not ignoring the fact that he's being treated with such injustice. But what he does know is that a people who actually hates him and a people who actually is in sin and does not desire him, they are not aware of their sin. And so then he has to suffer in a way to make us aware of our sin. What's, a, what's the awareness of our sin? The way that we treat Jesus. The way we mock him with our actions. The way we mock him and hold him in contempt by the idols that we worship. The way that we continuously dismiss him and make decisions of our own way and create our own wills. How do you see yourself in the drama yet? His silence was a defense mechanism in the face of harsh injustice. Jesus' silence did not mean weakness, but it was a depiction, again, of strength, surety, and hope. I think the closest thing that I could relate this to is when you look at the nonviolence movement. If you were just to take a reflection back to that time, you would see a movement Where individuals are being oppressed and beaten, but yet holding together. Isn't it interesting that they're locked arms and the very thing that are coming against them is causing them to be isolated. Isn't it interesting that they lock arms and are beaten, but yet their silence is being misread as weakness. Isn't it interesting that they sing songs of overcoming To hold in strong will, but yet never refute any of the people that are fought, that are coming against them. Beloved, that picture, I remember watching Eyes on the Prize. I remember seeing videos of them. And you can go to the National Civil Rights Museum and many of you cannot tell me that there is something boiling in you when you see people treated like that. You should feel the same thing when you see Jesus treated like this. A man beaten, a man suffering, and people in our society says that he's not real. People in our own congregation and that sit around us take him lightly. Do you see yourself in this drama yet? As we continue on this scene, you see that as Jesus is being rejected and despised, one of the things that is actually affirmed is what the prophet said in Isaiah 53 and 7. In that glorious chapter where you hear about Jesus' sufferings, the prophet says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet, he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter and a sheep that before its shears is silent. He, so he, Open not his mouth. He didn't have to open his mouth, beloved, because he knew who he was and still is. Sometimes we open our mouths, beloved, because we don't know who we are in him. 
when we feel the pressure, when we feel the mocking, when we feel that we're being the verdict on us is guilty, but we're not guilty. We feel oppressed. We feel challenged. We are hurt and suffering. But again, if we were to look at ourselves in this text, where are you? Brian Stevenson, who I would say today is a modern day hero through the work that he has done. Not only did he help Walter McMillan and several others, but he helped a brother named Anthony Ray Henton. Who was held on death row for 30 years. Anthony Ray Henton came out with a book called The Sun Still Shines, which is a memoir of his life. He was falsely accused because there was a gun used that police found or said they found in his house. For 30 years, he was held on trumped up charges, falsely accused. The Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson worked hard, tirelessly, to make sure this man would not suffer any longer. And I remember when Anthony Ray Hinton said these words, they took my 30s away. They took my 40s away. They even took my 50s away, but they did not take my joy. When I look at Jesus in this particular moment, he is so sure of himself. There was nothing that they could take away from him. Herod could not take his joy. Herod could not take his divinity. Although he wanted him to do signs and wonders, there was nothing that he could do to provoke Jesus. As we go to scene three, our last and final scene, an innocent king who is sentenced to death. A new character is involved. A brother named Bar- Bar- Barabbas, sorry, not Barnabas, Barabbas. As Barabbas comes into picture, I want you to see this. Here is a robber, an insurrectionist, one who is bringing revolt, a notorious prisoner, as many have said. He is held on the same stage as our beloved king. And in being held... Pilate is struggling and wrestling because he's declared him innocent. Herod has declared him innocent. And if you look at the narrative, Pilate is trying to make sure that Jesus gets off. But it's not because he cares about Jesus. It's only because he's trying to please. So what does he do? He beats Jesus. It was said in some re- in some writings, there was one who burnt some writings at a particular time and Pilate did the same exact thing. They wanted to sentence him to death, but they justified it by beating him and whipping him. Pilate figured that this would suffice this time as well. But as Pilate, self- as Pilate suggested that they beat him and that they tear him to shreds, what they continued to yell out was that he was accused. Give us Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Do you see yourself in the narrative? Do you see yourself in the drama? Would you be the one yelling crucify him? Would you be the one or Pilate trying to make both parties happy? Who are you in this drama? And I want you to think about this as it goes further. Matthew's gospel tell us that Jesus Barabbas is Barabbas's name. Historical context says that his name means son of of the father and in doing in 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 saying jesus barabbas we know that jesus's first name is not jesus 
Right? He is, I mean, his last name is not the Christ. Sorry. Jesus' last name is not the Christ. But he is the Messiah, defining himself. So when Matthew writes and puts them beside each other, he says, there's Jesus, Barabbas, and Jesus, the Christ. Who do you choose? The tension that you should feel from this text is actually asking yourself, who am I in this particular situation? Who would I choose? I posed the question initially at the beginning to help you wrestle with this idea of what it means to choose. If you know anything, you did not choose him. You did not choose Jesus. He chose you. And beloved, I want you to see something. Sometimes we choose the wrong Jesus. And in choosing the wrong Jesus... What Jesus teaches us in this particular situation, he's the very substitutionary atonement for our death. Jesus, on one end, who deserves death and should have every every charge brought up against him, is standing next to the real one who is proclaiming the king, proclaiming to be king and the Messiah of all things, is standing there saying, I am going to take your charges. Every false charge I'm going to take. For you. So that you may have eternal life. Why is this important? Because Jesus' suffering in silence means that we have salvation. Jesus' surety and strength means that we can live with him for eternity. There was one story that gave me a good depiction of this. A grandmother laying in the hospital bed with her granddaughter. Granddaughter so weak and beat from cancer that she can't even speak. And as the pastor walks into the room, he sees the grandmother cuddling and holding her granddaughter. And the grandmother is trying and wants to engage in everything and thus she is very silent. Because her the suffering of her granddaughter. Listen to this, beloved. She laid there silently until she died. Why? She did not want to overshadow the suffering. She wanted to enter into the suffering. I remember one analogy Dr. Dan Zing from Covenant Theological Seminary told us. He said, as pastors, you don't want to try to pull everyone out of the ditch. You need to get in the ditch, look at it from their perspective, and then try to help them out of the ditch. Beloved, this morning, this drama helps us see that it's not about who we are not in this text, but it's very much of who we are. Because if you are of the high priest, then that means you've denied him and you've Cause yourself to think that he's been teaching and misleading you all this time. And if you're Pilate, then you are trying to be swayed by all of the cultural norms and try to please people. If you're Herod, then you want to make sure that Jesus is only someone that does something for you. If you're Barabbas, you want to make sure that you get off with every charge that's set up against you. Who are you in this drama? And I want to leave it at that, beloved. So that we may wrestle with the tension this entire week so that we can look into Easter and realize that there is something good coming. Prepare your hearts and your minds and know that Jesus is sure and he's suffered silently so that we may endure. Let me pray for us.
Father, we love you and we bless you. We thank you for your wonderful mercy and grace. And we ask, God, that you continue to help us to rejoice. As much as, Lord, I I want to celebrate in this moment, help me even to feel the suffering and enter into it this week more and more. And all of us, Lord, do the same thing. As we lead our families and read the narrative, as we read it to our kids, help us to explain it. Help us to continue to engage and ask questions that we wrestle with. Help us to understand the truth of why Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection is the very thing. His resurrection is the very thing that makes our faith solid and firm. Help us to continue to worship you all this week and all that we do. For it is in Jesus' mighty name we pray. All God's people said, let us continue to worship God in our giving.